It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, my name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Tuesday, August 25th, 2020, and this is For Heaven's Sake, the new podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. In each episode of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein-Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself, will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Stein-Hain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will explore with us how classic Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Let's begin. Today our theme is Corona and the Gap Year in Israel, a right, a responsibility, or a mistake. This week about 17,000 students, principally from North America, classified as a red zone with one of the highest infection and fatality rates in the industrialized world, are beginning to start their year of studies and quarantine in Israel. While the pandemic is global, the way we manage the crisis and exit from danger is very much local and dependent on the policies of our countries, states, and cities. Israel is now suffering from the pandemic's second wave and is having difficulty getting it under control, especially in ultra-Orthodox cities, where 12,000 of the students are going to study. Why under these circumstances should Israel open its doors to these students? And when it does not do so with any other tourists from red countries and to date from even most green countries as well, there is no doubt that one of the considerations is economic and also political. With the 12,000 yeshiva students constituting a lifeline for the ultra-Orthodox yeshivot and thousands of individuals and families whose livelihoods are connected to these schools. Overall, the 17,000 students pour hundreds of millions of dollars into Israel's economy and generate thousands of jobs. Yossi, Ilana, nice to be with you and we're excited to have this conversation with you. Let's leave, however, these practical considerations aside for today's discussion and deal with the issue from a conceptual and ideological perspective. Yossi, how do you understand why Israel is doing what it's doing? Do you think Israel's wrong? irresponsible, crazy, or noble in accepting these 17,000 students? Yes. (laughs) All of the above. It is profoundly irresponsible, bordering on the crazy, uh, for a country to admit thousands of people, uh, especially many of them coming, as we know, from areas that have been hard hit by Corona. I'm thinking of my old neighborhood in Brooklyn, for starters. It's, it's madness. A country's first responsibility, and for a normal country, its only responsibility is to protect its citizens. But that's the caveat. 
we're not a normal country. We are the state of all of our citizens. That's one definition of Israel. And the other definition is we're the state of the Jewish people. Often we're able to coexist with these two identities uh, in a relatively harmonious way. But every so often, and the issue you're raising right now is one of them, we experience a disconnect, a real clash between the responsibility of Israel as the state of all of its citizens, to protect its citizens, and the state of the Jewish people. And so the question that you're raising here, Danielle, really is who belongs here? And what is the responsibility of, uh, of the government of Israel? And yes, the responsibility of the Israeli government is first of all to protect our citizens, but also to ensure that Israel remains the center point of, uh, of the Jewish people. So bottom line though, you said yes, but now you're Yossi Klein Halevi. You have to decide, would you allow these 17,000? Which, which of these two considerations at this moment should win? Oh, you know, it's, it's with a heavy heart and thinking of my family, thinking of my children, uh, I still come out on the side of the Jewish people. We, if we close our doors to world Jewry under any circumstances, we are doing violence to, to the purpose of why we exist. Where do you come out on this, Daniel? You and I here share that same instinct. I, I was very deeply impacted by a personal experience. A, a few months ago, I had to get my father-in-law, who has since passed away, from America to Israel, because Israel had an experimental treatment that was not available in the United States. And if he would have stayed in the United States, he, was, he faced certain death. And I had to get him in. But the law of Israel said, you don't, can't come in. He was only one person. He wasn't 17,000, and there were no larger interests involved. And Israel said no. And I pushed and I pushed, and I was hitting a wall. Hello, he's part of our mishpacha. I said, let him make aliyah. They said, no problem, it's a six months. I said, what do you mean six months? And it turned out we were two months late. But do you know how he got in at the end? We pushed, and I got directly to the minister of health, who approved it. And even then, the bureaucracy was going to take too long. Do you know how we got in at the end? Somebody from the interior ministry, we got to her, a, a minor a minor bureaucrat, heard the story and she said, I'm going to go around the official channels. She said, this is our mishpacha, when I'm going to let someone from our mishpacha, someone from our family die. At the end of the day, for me, Israel belongs to the Jewish people. That's what it belongs to. Now, Israelis have to determine foreign policy. Israelis are the ones who vote. But an Israel that doesn't belong to the Jewish people, an Israel that doesn't feel itself claimed by the Jewish people, is missing something uh, very deep. And I know, I demanded of Israel to allow my father-in-law to come home. And even though I understood when they said no, it was, that's not my Israel. And so even though these students, it's not life and death, even though we have to talk about what it is that they're experiencing here, I, I come down very close to where you are, that we should take the risk um, at this moment. I have to tell you that I have a personal corona story related to Israel that takes me emotionally to a very different place. My son, Shachar, is a student in New York. And when corona hit New York hard, we told him to come home. He got on an LL flight 
that was packed with dozens of Chabad yeshiva students. Israeli or American? Ah, they were all Israeli. Aha. Uh-huh. And almost every one of them was tested positive when they got off the plane. What, and Israel accepted them? Yes, my strong suspicion, without going into all the details, I looked into this. This was investigated in the media. The Israeli government knew these kids had corona. Chabad, I'm convinced, knew these kids had corona. No one on the plane was warned. My son sat next to someone who was coughing the entire flight. But that's the rub. These kids, they were all Israeli citizens. And still, I think we should have been much more careful about letting them in. Or not putting your son on their plane. <laughs> At the very least. <laughs> At the very <laughs> least. And, and, and so there's something in me, Danielle, that says, well, wait a minute. We had to accept these kids because they were Israeli citizens. What if they weren't Israeli citizens? How would I feel then? And, you know, maybe I've lived in this country too long, but there's a nativistic instinct in me that rebels against the idea of, wait a minute, you made the decision to come here only as a tourist or a student, and I have to risk my family's health in order for Israel to be your your Jewish playground. Now, that's the less charitable side of an Israeli nativistic response. But it's there. I have to tell you the truth. But you, but you yourself overcome it. So let me ask you why. Because let's, let's dig down into this case. Now, we know that Israelis, there's a very large, broad consensus in Israel, that when Jews are under attack in the world, Israel is their place of refuge. This is at the core of Zionism. This is what it means to be the homeland of the Jews. That if you have to come, we have to let you in. That's the law of return. And Israelis... There, this is self-evident, even when it is accepting a million Jews from the former Soviet Union, who aren't halachically, but they're, they're part of the tribe. Uh, 150,000 from Ethiopia. No one asks, is it in our interest? Are we making money? Is it good? When you're dying, Israel is completely in tune with Jewish suffering and feels itself responsible. But when Jews aren't suffering, Israel is unbelievably tonal deaf. Israelis don't even like stories of non-Jewish suffering because if you're living in the diaspora, you're supposed to be suffering. And in general, Israelis are, we're not sensitive to, to the interests of world Jewry, Kotel, religious pluralism. Israelis have a very ambivalent love-hate relationship. So if we ignore Jews of plenty, Jews who have all their needs supplied for them, why do you think in this case, studying in Israel, and let's ignore the Haredi political side, is there something deeper? Why in this case did Israel decide yes? You know, listening to you formulate the question made me realize that this is a formative moment in rethinking the Israeli diaspora relationship. Because what we're doing here is not risking ourselves for Jews who are going to be joining Israeli society. That, as you put it, that's a given. What we're doing here is we're risking our family's well-being, the health of our kids potentially, to allow young Jews from abroad the privilege, one can say the right, to study in Israel, to come here and then leave, go back home, and home is not here. And yet we are still committing ourselves in the most tangible way possible. We're risking ourselves in order to to affirm the right of diaspora Jews to come here 
and to go back. Why? What we're doing here, Daniel, is, is we're reconfiguring the Israeli diaspora relationship. And it's, it's a precious moment in that sense. We're telling diaspora Jews, we accept the fact that you're going to come here and leave, and we're ready to risk ourselves for that right. Interesting. We filed a disagreement. Because why? You're saying because we're, re- we're redefining the relationship. I think that part of what Israelis love, they love when world Jewry comes to study here. Israelis love the centrality of Israel. That's at the core of Zionism. Israel is not only the place where Jews are safe, Israel is the well of Jewish spiritual and intellectual creativity, strength, and renaissance. Torah. Torah shall come forth from Zion. So as long as world Jewry fits into our narrative of ourselves, ahalan wasahalan, welcome. So I don't know if we're redefining, but we're doing something. So I agree with you on half. We're, we're taking upon ourselves a danger, which Israelis don't usually like to do. Yes? That's precisely the point, is that up until this moment, it has been toll-free for Israel. You come here, you study, you come to Hebrew University, you come to yeshiva. It's all great, right? This is all, it only accrues to our glory, our centrality. We now are being called upon to make a risk for that centrality. And the other piece of this that I don't think should be minimized is that it's, we're not only affirming the centrality of Israel, we're also affirming the, the right of diaspora Jews to come and go, even at a time of danger, even placing Israelis at risk. This is let, something new. Let, let's, let's play with that term. Use the term right. It's a very interesting term. You're saying that Israelis are accepting that North American Jews have a right to come here, to use Israel, and I would add, as long as you use it in ways that are central, in accordance with our own narrative. You don't get to come here and and change my narrative, but you get to come here and reaffirm the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. We are the center of Jewish life, and we're willing to actually endanger ourselves and to see you as having a right. Do you think that world Jewry has a right to use Israel in this way? They have a right to make Aliyah. That's the old, to move to Israel. That's the old Ben-Gurion line in which the law of return is basically, um, we're, we're not allowing world Jewry to move here. We're just allowing them to exercise the right that they already have because they're owners. But here, they're not at home. They're home in America or Canada or wherever it might be. Do you think that North American Jews have a right to claim this from Israel? Yeah, I think it's the right of, uh, of pilgrimage. One can conceptualize this in ancient Jewish language. Uh, there is a right of pilgrimage. There's an obligation of pilgrimage. And, uh, and, and I think that this, in some sense, is a, is a modern expression of that. Really interesting. Your parallel of pilgrimage, that this is, it's not a year of study, it's pilgrimage. That's a fascinating way of expanding this conversation. That we don't come up on, on Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuot, that the gap year is a pilgrimage to Israel. We know that Jews living in, in Elephantine in, in ancient Egypt would come on pilgrimage here. We know that, that the diaspora during Roman times would come to, to the temple. And so this, this is in some sense a redefining of that relationship. Now, what's also interesting about pilgrimage uh, in ancient times from the diaspora is that Jews came and then they left. 
They didn't stay. And what we are doing now is accepting the permanence, the legitimacy of the diaspora, even if we're not explicitly saying so. Working on this idea, Israelis welcome pilgrims when it fits into the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. We welcome pilgrims when it's in our interests. The interest could be economic. The interest could be political. The interest could be that you're reaffirming the story I tell about myself as being the center of Jewish life. So I love it. I love it when people come. You're not coming to Disneyland. You're not coming to an amusement park. You're coming to a real place. And by coming, you're reaffirming. But what I would hope would grow out of this is that if world Jewry has a right to come here and to leave, that Israelis would take the next step. If we could see world Jewry as having a right to visit, that means they have a claim on this country. And what we have to work out are what are the parameters of that claim. And this is also something that I'd like to expand more deeply in in a future podcast. What claim? Because Israelis are petrified of world Jewry claiming a voice on foreign policy or when our kids will go to war. And uh, they're, they're very, very uh, Haredi about making sure that the boundaries of what your rights are, a Jew outside of Israel's rights are in Israel. But here it's true. The idea of pilgrimage is that Israel belongs to the Jewish people. You know, my father used to have this line where he said that Israel's too important to leave to Israelis. The idea of pilgrimage that you're adding to our conversation is that Israel doesn't belong to Israelis. It belongs to the Jewish people, and as a result, they have a right to come. What we need to do is to ask, what are those rights? Not only just to come and leave. That's great. You come and leave, and maybe you leave some, uh, you leave money, maybe you leave some, some garbage, uh, but you leave. What happens when I say that you come and you have ability to shape what's here? That the coming is not just so that you could learn to go back home and impact on life outside of Israel, but that that relationship demands something deeper of Israelis. I, I hear three implicit claims that this moment is, is actually giving voice to. The first, as you say, is that diaspora Jews have a stake in the state of Israel. The second is that diaspora Jews have the right to come and to go, which means that the diaspora has the right to be not just a a place where Jews happen to live, but to be an essential part of the Jewish people, of Jewish identity, which the state of Israel has to recognize. But there's a third claim here, Daniil, and that is that the state of Israel has the right to claim that it is in fact the center of Jewish life, and Uh. this moment is affirming that as well. That one is going to need a lot of expansion, and I want to come back to that. But we're now going to take a short break, and then we're going to return uh, to learn with Ilana. Hi, I'm Claire Sufren, and if you're listening to For Heaven's Sake, you're probably curious about the major ideas and debates of the day affecting Jews in America. So I have great news for you. I'm the co-editor with Yehuda Kurtzer of The New Jewish Canon, a book that just came out this summer. You can find out more about it at newjewishcanon.com. In this book, we've gathered all Jewish ideas that happened between 1980 and 2015. Well, maybe not quite everything, but it contains major texts and debates that were vitally important to the American Jewish community, along with a series of reflective essays by today's thinkers that explain the debates and their importance. Read about it and how to buy it at newjewishcanon.com. Today's theme, Corona and the Gap Year in Israel, a right, a responsibility, or a mistake. Ilana, 
What Torah do you have that you think could enrich this conversation, could enrich our understanding of the dilemma? So I want to take your symbol of pilgrimage, Yossi, and I want to take it from the perspective of the pilgrim. The two of you are talking about from Israel's perspective, what does it mean for people to come visit and then go home? And are we the center? Are we not the center? I want to think about from, and I'm going to go with American because that's what I am, right? From an American perspective, there's something so strange about this pilgrimage. First of all, if you're going to study, I understand you're going on kibbutz, that's something else. You're going to study. You can study Torah and you can go to college. You can learn anywhere. Why there? And the second is, if we're very at home, American Jews, what, what, what do we need the pilgrimage for? What's that about? So what I want to do is I want to look at this pilgrimage from two different perspectives and in a way that I think will suss out two different pieces of the experience that you're talking about. One is, what is the person who comes to Israel seeking? What are they looking for? Very parallel to you asking, what's Israel getting out of it? But the second is, what's the impact on the ecosystem of American Jewish life or North American Jewish life when North American kids go to Israel and come back and bring something with them? So let's start with the experience of the pilgrim, of the person who grows up. Now, there is plenty in Jewish thought about the significance of the land of Israel. There's Gemara in Ketubot that says all who live in the land of Israel, it's as though they live with a God. All who live outside of the land of Israel, it's as though they have no God. But many of those comments are talking about living in the place. I wanna look at a text that is actually talking exactly about what you're referring to. Going to visit, study, learn, and the presumption is you're gonna leave. And this is a later rabbinic text. And what I love about the fact that it's later, and what I mean is it's not in the Babylonia, Palestine, two centers of Jewry arguing with each other. It's in a slightly different time period, even if it ascribes itself to earlier thinkers. And it goes like this. Rabbi Yossi, the son of Chalafta, says to his son, Rabbi Yishmael, if you want to see the divine presence in this world, go study Torah in the land of Israel. And then he cites a verse from Psalms to Hillam, seek out God and God's strength, which the rabbis think refers to Torah, search out God's countenance, excuse me, always. And I want to break this down a little bit because this is not talking about go Where is this source, Silana? This is from a midrash called Shocher Tov, it's a midrash on Tehillim. We don't even find reference to it until the 11th century. Uh-huh. But it's beautiful. I want to focus on three elements here. None of this is about living in the land. It's about going and study. The first, he says to his son, if you want to see something, if you want to experience something, go see something amazing that you can't usually get. That's one, experience. Two, spirituality. What's the something that he wants his son to experience? Experience the divine presence, something spiritual, something metaphysical, something that you aren't going to necessarily get here. Now, 
you could argue, and of course this text is saying that it's because it's the land of Israel, but there's also something to pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is you go to a place that is known through your holy texts and you experience it as something new. It's revitalizing, it does something else. And that leads me to the third, which is seeking. What does it mean to do something, not in the place where you always are, but to seek and to go somewhere else? And so I wanna frame, yeah, sure, there are plenty of people who are going to Israel because it's actually safer, it feels safer or more normal, or they're leading a more normal life by studying in Israel this year. But even if Jews are Americans at, at their core, even if Jews are Canadians at their core, there's something about being able to go to the land of our forefathers and our foremothers, where the covenant between God and the Jewish people is cemented and narrated, and to say, I'm back here, I'm, I'm connecting to an experience I couldn't get somewhere else. Now, that's on the individual level. Now, is that about the centrality of the state of Israel? Maybe yes, maybe no. It's certain metaphysic, it's about a history, it's about an identity, but they're going there because they can get something a little bit different. But there's a second aspect to this. It's not just the individual experience. I want to know what does it do for 17,000 North American kids to be going to Israel? Not what mark do they leave on Israel, but what do they bring back to Israel? And for that, I want to look at a different- from Israel. Yes, and to exactly. American Jewry, to North American get, Jewry. Before you get to that side, and I think it's really oh, sure. critical. Are you saying then if Israel has to take responsibility over the fact that it is the protector of or the owner of the place where Jews could have this experience, that if we want Jews to have a spiritual experience, to be seekers— if this is an integral part of what it means to live a full Jewish life, and you are the ones who are the citizens of this place, just like Saudi Arabia are the, are the ones who are sitting on Mecca, you have to allow people to have these experiences? Look, it's what Yehuda Michai complains about. Everybody comes, they look at the arches, and they don't look at the person who's carrying the food from the but supermarket, who's standing under the saying, arch. Right, but I'm but saying I, the flip. The if flip, your arches beautiful. are there... If you're in that location, and that is the location of <laughs> where the Tanakh, where the Bible is narrated, that, that's a responsibility. That's part of what you but, have. It's a battery. It's a, it's a, it's a route yeah. for Jewish people, for Judaism. Let me, let me take the role of the guy who's standing with his, with his bags of, of produce under the arch. There's something that, that deeply troubles me about the abstract nature of much of this pilgrimage. Are these young people coming to a real country, which the state of Israel happens to be? Or are they coming to an imaginary Israel? Are they coming to an Israel that maybe once existed, certainly doesn't exist anymore in that form? What is it that they're looking for? And are they bypassing the real everyday flesh and blood Israel? But I think what Ilana is saying is that I don't have a responsibility to open up real Israel to you. Maybe, this is a, it's a paradox, that an Israeli doesn't have a responsibility to share real Israel. But Israelis, as the citizens who are in the spiritual 
historical searching Israel, that's where your responsibility comes up. This is, it's, it's, it's a really interesting read. Forget about your economics. Correct. Uh, that's what, it's, it's, it's not the homeland of the Jewish people. This is, you are sitting on the spiritual, what did you use the term, Ilana? Battery. Yes. You're sitting on a spiritual reservoir. And if you think that that belongs to you alone, sorry, it doesn't. It's not the home of the Jewish people. It's the home of Judaism. Wow. wow. Obviously, it's also the home of the Jewish people. But it's also the home of Judaism. And I understand we have a 2,000-year history. We could go back to Iraq and say, we want to see where all the Babylonian academies. I got it. But there's something. The covenant is not forged in Babylonia. It's continued. It's, it, there's something about the homeland of Judaism. But this is what makes me want to go to the ecosystem point, which is it's not just that I go to Israel and I get my spiritual batteries recharged because I'm actually connecting with a place, but I'm also connecting with people. And what does it mean for thousands of young North American Jews to go to Israel and bring some of that back with them? It's not what just what's the impact. What are they bringing back? And for that, I, it's not a text that I want to look at. It's a phenomenon that I want to look at. Throughout the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds, you find this category of rabbis from Babylonia who would travel to the land of Israel, learn things, do trade, and come home back to Babylonia and teach what they learned. They're called the Nechute, the descenders, meaning they would ascend, go up to the land of Israel. There's your centrality narrative, you'll see, right? And then they would descend, they would come back to Babylon. There's a cultural exchange that takes place that then would impact Babylonian Judaism. And I want to understand if it's important, and that's for Israelis to think about, but if it's important for Israelis that that kind of exchange happen, that American Jews and North American Jews get some sort of infusion, because I know that it is crucial to American Judaism's flourishing. I know there are lots of differences, but there's something, and it relates to that individual experience, there's something that people bring back. There's, you could call it Torah Eretz Yisrael, the teaching of Israel, and it doesn't have to be words, and it doesn't have to be content. There's a connection and a connectivity that they bring back to us in America as a result of going. There's something, there's something born out of that. Yossi, you wanted to say something? What, what you're saying then is that the modern state of Israel is custodian of the ancient land of Israel or the Holy Land. Now, if we take that far enough, what is our responsibility to Christian pilgrims who have that same need for their spiritual batteries to be replenished by coming here on pilgrimage? Do we have a responsibility as the custodians of the Holy Land, of this ancient uh, repository of, of spirituality uh, to, to provide uh, that, to offer what's here to, uh, to Christian pilgrims? I think that is a very fair question. And that is exactly where what we would call Yerushalayim Shalmala, the Jerusalem of above, and Yerushalayim Shalmata, the Jerusalem of below, meaning this idea of the ancient and the heavenly and the metaphysical and the very gritty, political, honest, real, everyday go to the supermarket, sometimes clash with each other. And we know it. This is exactly what you're describing. Yossi, Ilana, it's always a delight to be with you. Corona and the gap year, right responsibility or a mistake? 
as we've learned from the two of you, it depends on how you understand Israel. What does this country mean? And it's a really interesting challenge for citizens of a country to ask themselves, do you have a responsibility which goes beyond your immediate interests, no matter how complex they may be? What does it mean to not be the homeland of the Jewish people, but to sit on the historical homeland, the homeland of Judaism? Thank you both very, very much. Before we end, this issue is not a theoretical issue for us here at the Hartman Institute. We have a gap year, and our students are arriving now. It's a gap year where half the students are Israeli, half the students are North American, and as Ilana, you said at the end, it's the most intense engagement of the two populations with each other over a whole year. What each one takes from it is what we're exploring, which is in essence the issue that we have today. Thanks for listening to our show. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Kelman and edited by Daniel Zena. Our managing director is Dan Friedman with music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show, so please write us. You can reach us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next time, and thanks for listening.